Hi, Cedric. Um, Hi, Marcus. Hey, <laughs> very very nice to see you today and tonight. And uh, it's uh, yeah, it's night here. It's afternoon for you. Uh, you're in Chicago. I'm in Berlin, Germany. And uh, um, it's kind of like we have sort of like this this, this interesting uh, relationship. Let's say, like I think I first met you at a uh, Crimson Project show in 2011, Correct. right? That's right. Yep. <laughs> yes. And then the uh, uh, and that was in in St. Louis. Yes, and, that's where I used to live. Yes, and uh, then um, I didn't see you the next time we came through, or one other time we came through with Stickman. Right, but, I was uh, working. But for some reason, we we then got in touch after, because <laughs> <laughs> some of our gear got stolen. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> this, this is when it's good to have a friend that's a policeman, see, so yes. I can uh, <laughs> start yeah. looking at... Yeah, you know, I was I, so... It's especially, I was so embarrassed behind that. I mean, we had a we had a bad reputation for that for a while, and it was just when I heard it happen to you guys, I I just wanted to just you know, just crawl through the floor. It was just horrible. Yeah, yeah. But what can you do? It's uh, I I don't, and you know that seems to be like one of the worst things that you can do when you're when you're stealing stuff. You like tools that other people need, right? It's yeah. It's really. <laughs> I mean, you can get buy. You can you know you can get money, but or you know, steal money, but don't steal hammers and, uh, right. you know, <laughs> and, and guitars. You, you know, you're, ta- you're taking somebody's livelihood for crying out loud. And, yes. I, and, yeah. I, and I really, really wish I could have caught the guy doing it. Like, what were you planning on doing this? Can you play this stuff? I'm just, I'm just asking, you know, so somehow I doubt it. Yeah. 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 No. So, um, so you, you are very, very active as a music, uh, lover, I would say, and music, I would say as a journalist, even like I don't know if you yeah, would, if I'll, you would use that term. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do it because journalism was my actual job when I was in the military before I became a policeman, mm-hmm. and I've been writing writing actively since high school. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm in my fifties now, so it's been a couple of days. But yeah, I, I journalist is is good, and I've been called a musicologist, which mm-hmm. I had trouble getting comfortable with for a while. But you know, I'm kind of there. Because, you know, musicology is not just about the who and the what of music. It's about the why. And yes. I like to learn about the why a lot. So I like to think I'm qualified. Oh, for, sure, for sure you are. I mean, you have an incredible knowledge about music. And, uh, I, I think, appreciate that. And I, I think <laughs> you do. And, I, you know, you, you can introduce me to stuff that I've never heard of that is really uh, very special. And, uh, you, you, well, you certainly... And this is something that I, I sometimes I have to remind myself of. I'm a professional musician, which means I really spend a lot of time working with my own within my own yes. world, and I really don't <laughs> yes. have don't have a, a good overview about what's going on. Then there are people on the other side, like you, people who really know a lot because you can you you don't have to uh, generate the content yourself let's say <laughs> right 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 i i barely touch my guitars they're there and they look pretty but uh <laughs> i don't have to play them for a living or anything like that yeah and, yeah yeah exactly and you don't you don't have to produce albums <laughs> correct <laughs> yes yes I, I just get to review them that that's going to be much easier i think yeah so um like obviously i think we we will talk about music but um your former um job um was uh, you were a policeman, a police officer, yes. right? Twenty twenty five years now retired. So so let me say something really stupid. 
<laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> so uh, American American uh, police officers, officers. I only know them from TV shows. Right. Uh, here in Germany, obviously, all I know about what you supposedly do, <laughs> I know from, from TV shows. Comes from uh, a Law & Order episode, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or something like that. Uh, um, but there was there's something that maybe you uh, you mentioned that um, in a post on social media or um, or maybe it's just something that I c came up with just right now. Uh -huh. I think that uh, probably um, uh, communication is a very very big part of the job of being a policeman. Probably. Oh, absolutely, right? absolutely. Yeah. I, I was a training officer for my last uh, five years, and one of the first things I taught my kids was. Being able to talk to people is huge. It's everything. It's the ball game. You know, I'm I'm old and I have bad knees. I don't have time to get engaged in foot pursuits and stuff <laughs> like that. So, so I would tell them, you know, you know, like you need to understand. First of all, we're not getting into any foot pursuits, and they look all downtrodden. And I said, well, that's because I'm going to teach you how to talk to people, so that the foot pursuit is never necessary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll just we're just going to hash this out right here, you know. And if a guy runs, okay, well, we'll deal with that then. But That's very, very rare if you know how to communicate with people. Communication and empathy. I can't stress empathy enough. And that goes completely around this social sphere that uh, that law enforcement is. Everybody needs to be able to empathize with, with each other, if only for a couple of seconds, because it'll, it'll improve your decision making. It'll improve your thought process. But you've just got to be willing to slow down and do it. And that's where a lot of the breakdown comes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there, there seems to be like I, I spoke with a with a friend yesterday who was also part of your group on Facebook actually, and yes. he, and he said he was saying something about that the the uh, communication in your group is super uh, good and civilized and and like very positive, and I'm I'm wondering if that actually <laughs> has something to do with with how you spend 25 years of your life. Oh, I, I would be lying if I said it didn't because there are just, there are these, you know, and I just had to, uh, this morning I had to delete a post that kind of uh, kind of went off the rails, you know, mm -hmm. whereas uh, about progressive rock fans, it doesn't matter. It was a silly little meme that I didn't think a whole lot about, but, you know, a lot of people kind of got upset about it. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it and, and here comes that empathy. You know, I looked at it and went, well, you know, it doesn't bother me that much, but I can certainly see where that would, That would annoy you, and it's really not worth keeping here to have that argument going back and forth. That's not what I want. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, I, I I direct message the guy who who posted it and said, "Hey, you know, take a second and defend yourself, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna pull the pole." And he did that. He he went on and he said, hey, "I was just kidding, and it was just a joke." And he apologized. And okay, you pull the post and you and you move on. But uh, social, you you know, you know, some of these Facebook groups and whatnot have just become so incredibly toxic. I mean, it's just people just talking about what they hate and why they hate people are on a fan page talking about how much they hate the record of the person's <laughs> the person whose page they're on. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, why, yeah. how, how about you just not say anything or, or, mm -hmm. or just say, well, this isn't really my cup of tea. I'll wait for the next album. And so that's why I, I'm pulling out of, out of group after group after group. And I've, I've, I've started my own group because mm -hmm. I can lay down the rules. <laughs> All right, we're going to be civil here. We're not going to come down on people because we don't like the music they, that they may like. You know, that's that's up to them. That's up to you. So, yeah, I, I think I have become kind of a, 
an internet traffic cop, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. So I, I obviously agree with you that like the the hate about the album of the artist, which pay, you know whose page you're on, is sort of bizarre. But yeah. on the <laughs> other hand, on the other hand, it's also uh, fascinating how personal uh, some of this, uh, you know, like music or what what kind of uh, very strong emotional response music can uh, create in oh, people. Sure. And, sure. And sure. Like, and I'm, I'm no different. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I, I but I guess like mostly mostly we're looking for the uh, for the positive. Uh, right. Emotion, right? <laughs> I, I think that comes with with age and experience. You know, when you when you're younger, and there's something about the internet that, especially if you can just use a handle instead of your real name, you know, anonymity can breed some ignorance. You know, you, you mm. feel like you're safe behind that keyboard. You know, by just saying whatever it is you want to say, and people get passionate. I mean, I'll use King Crimson as an example. You know, the '80s band with Adrian, Robert, Tony, and Bill. That's that's my favorite band. Because that's how I was introduced. But I have been, you know, figuratively smacked around by, by some people who who are stuck in the 69 to 74 range. Or they just want to hear the original band and whatnot. And you know what? If that's your favorite group, that's fine. I don't care. You know, if, if you love what the current band is doing, you know, bringing back the old stuff from that era in AP's form, that's fine. I don't care. You know, but why, why would you just stomp on me? Because it doesn't resonate with me the same way it resonates with you. Yeah. You know, I, I don't. I don't understand that. Yeah. 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 It's uh, it's a, King Crimson is an interesting uh, um, organism, let's say, in that regard, because they, it went the band went through so many changes, lineup changes, right. and and even like sty styles and like why why would any anybody expect that one has to like everything or uh, you know like For me, it actually, I have to say, like the 80s Crimson was also the mo my favorite. But then I got to love the uh, John Wetton era. And oh, also, sure. also the, yeah. and, and so, so really, um, so how does one become a cop in the US? How did you how become one... a cop? Yeah. <laughs> there's, well, there's a certain degree of insanity that, that goes with that to, <laughs> to, want, to, uh, to want to do this job. Um, How do I put, how did I become a cop? People have asked me that, you know, why did you become a policeman? I said, well, you know, when I was growing up, I was the kid that played by the rules. I was the kid that people came to me with their problems. I made the peace. I listened to, you know, you know, I, I, I mediated things. So I figured what the hell I may as well get paid for it. You know? but, <laughs> so that's a trifle glib. And, you know, an equally glib is that we talked about my journalism background and I wanted to go to work for our, our major newspaper in St. Louis, the uh, Post-Dispatch. And I got an offer to do some part-time work, but the salary was just terrible. Mm -hmm. So I had to look into something that would offer me, you know, a halfway decent salary along with a pension and insurance benefits, which is huge. But uh, as for the process itself, if that's what you're asking me about, uh, you need to be 21 years old, have no criminal record, you know, have a, uh, have a driver's license, that kind of stuff. You have to undergo a battery of tests, you know, and, and basically uh, recall exercises and psychological testing and physical fitness. You get through all of that and you get uh, nominated to go to the academy. You go to the academy and you're, you're what we call a civilian recruit and training. Now, mind you, this is the St. Louis Police Department. It varies 
from mm -hmm. department to department. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. my academy was 16 weeks long, but we were the last 16-week class. The kids I was training were in the academy for almost seven months. Mm -hmm. So they just kind of added to the, uh, to the classwork and the workload and what have you. You come out on the street after you graduate, you spend three months with me. You're your wonderful <laughs> training officer, and if I deem you worthy of being out on the street by yourself, I will sign off on the paperwork after I've done all your evaluations and send you on your merry way. It's really, it's not overly difficult. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's not complex. It doesn't require a whole lot. And one could argue that could be part of the problem, too, because uh, I'm planning on writing a book down the road about the challenges of policing, and... A couple of people are going to get upset with me when I say this, but I have I have maintained that policing is one of the last areas where a person with a limited education can hold a position of authority. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and for a while, okay, no big deal. But the world has become more nuanced. You know, the world has become more socially socially aware and what have you. And you need to have the empathy and the compassion and the knowledge and the education behind you. In order to do your job more effectively and a lot of the cops out there some of the cops out there you know some of uh, most of the cops that are on tv doing bad things let's put it that way don't have that level of training or they've chosen to ignore it and that's part of the problem mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when you say part of the problem what what is the 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 overarching problem, what, what, what do you say? Wow, the overarching problem is so complex and it's on so many levels. Mm -hmm. the, the biggest problem is when people are asked a question similar to that, they want to point in one direction. It's mm -hmm. that guy's fault, it's this guy's fault. Well, guys, it's cyclical, okay? It's, it's not just the police department, it's the society that, you know, that we're growing up in. It's a, it's a dearth of education. It's a dearth of, you know, job opportunities. It's, you know, it's a lack of, of, uh, of resources out there. It's an economic issue, you know. It's cops who have been raised in one part of my town in a more affluent suburb or what have you, who come to work in some of the roughest ghettos, you know, no, no demand, and they have no concept of what that's like or what those people are like. You just assume that everybody you're dealing with is a criminal. And that's not the case at all, no. you know. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully I'm not babbling, but one of the things I was taught in the academy that stuck with me is what we call the 90-10 principle, which means 90% of our time is spent dealing with 10% of the people, which means by, by, by and large, everybody's okay, you know, but this element is going to be what keeps us busy. And the same thing applies in the inverse, okay? 90% mm -hmm. of the problems in law enforcement are, are committed by 10% of the cops. You know, and I can all but guarantee you that if you go down to uh, our internal our internal affairs division, internal investigations or whatever it is they may call it in a particular department, there's going to be a file and you're going to see some of the same names over and over and over again, because that's just that's their MO. That's what they do. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that there's any there is no well, in fact, I know for a fact there is no simple answer to your question because it is. It's multifaceted, and the first thing everybody has to do is be willing to accept the fact that they are, in fact, part of the problem. And some people just are not going to do that. You know, I, I was hoping you could give me a simple answer. Sorry. Only kidding. I'm only kidding. I, I think my book's going to be about that thick when I'll yes. say <laughs> You know, it's, to me, it feels like it's, it's a real privilege to, uh, to be able to talk to you um, and 
to hopefully get some insight into what you experienced all those years, like over two well, decades. And, yeah. um, and it's, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm very aware of, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, even, even not being in a, in a position like that, I can imagine uh, the conflicts right. you may be getting into. Right, and and uh, and I also understand if there's just like if you're just in the slightest, uh, uh, not really centered, let's say, right, as you know, as a person in that position, uh, things can go very bad very very quickly, yeah. and and, and, and so there's conflicts. a lot of response that a lot of responsibility. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, and those conflicts are on multiple levels. You yeah, know? I mean whether it's whether it's within the department, you know, trying to do the right thing within the department, even though some of the rules seem ridiculously arbitrary. Or for me, as an African-American, it's, it's a social issue, you know, because, you know, once you go out in the street, people will not particularly see you in the most positive way because of what, you know, I do for a living or what I did for a living. You know, as far as they're concerned, I'm sold out African-Americans by becoming a policeman. And conversely, it's difficult for me to explain to people who've never been in that situation, who've never lived in that culture, you know, it's difficult for me to explain to white officers why black people are thinking the way they're thinking. So, you know, I'm just, I'm literally caught in the middle. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson did a remake of the movie Shaft. Not a great movie, <laughs> to, to be certain, but but he had a great line, uh, you know, about how he was caught in the middle. He said he was, he's too black for the badge, he's too blue for the brothers. <laughs> and that's, that's, <laughs> that is precisely where I was, and especially once the uh, the Ferguson thing kicked off, you know, that that's a northern St. Louis suburb. You know, I, I wasn't there, but a lot of my friends went up there for the uh, for the civil unrest and what have you. And that's precisely where I am. I'm standing. I'm I'm. It's like like watching a, a tennis match from you know from the net. Just my head's going back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> and I, I'm just I'm just stuck there, and it's it's horrible. It really is. You know, it, and, and you know that that aspect of uh, the the American culture um, with the African Americans, it's, right. it's it's to me it's uh, really something that I'm I'm coming from Germany. It's not something that I understand. I really have right. to admit, and so that's also why I'm grateful that you're here. Like for example, I don't see your skin color. I do not see right. it. It's not part of of what I, what is important. It's like, like when you, like the, maybe a stupid example, but uh, like my, my partner, she has a huge tattoo, right? Right. I, I don't see it anymore. And maybe I saw it like the first few months, right? But, but you, yeah, you adapted to it. You, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of like the same, like, because I, I take people for uh, who they are and, and it's not, it's not about the skin color. Um, right. But I, I, I can understand what you're saying um, that um, it, it must it must be must be like really uh, uh, I would say you, you must have been like really torn uh, in some way, right? There, there are days to be certain of two things. The more let's put it on the more militant leftist side when, when, you know, when somebody says, well, I don't see color. Well, they say, well, that's the highest form of privilege there is because you don't have to worry about it. And all right, fine, whatever. <laughs> On the other hand, you've got people who, you know, they see nothing but that. Yeah. And they but, bring... but do do you do you see do you see my skin color when we communicate? 
No, no, I, I, I don't care. Just wondering. Yeah, you know, well, here, I, I take Martin Luther King's speech to heart. You know, I have a dream where one day I will be, my children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That's what I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. So if mm -hmm. I'm hanging out with you, if I'm talking to you, if I'm going to one of your concerts, if I'm doing, you know, a podcast with you, it's because I like you on a human level. Mm -hmm. You know, there are plenty of people who look like me that are jerks. Yeah. You know that I want mm -hmm. that I want nothing to do with. I try my best not to see that kind of thing, and it's not. And even beyond color, it's a question of politics or ideals. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest problems you have out there with a lot with many policemen is that they try to enforce their politics rather than the law. Oh, <laughs> and that's, I see. Mm -hmm. that's problematic. Okay, now if I uh, prime example, and I'm sorry to babble, but this this, this is going to make sense. I went on a call for a disturbance where a woman was incredibly upset that a man was flying a Confederate battle flag on a pole in his front yard. Mm -hmm. Now, I show up, and this is a black woman who called me, and I show up, and she's like, oh, I got it made. <laughs> you know, he's going to see it my way. And she told me what was going on, and the, uh, the owner of the flag in the house was on the other side of his fence, and I looked at him, and I looked at the flag, and I looked back at her, and I said, well, man, there's nothing I can do. And she looked at me like I had three heads. What are you talking about? <laughs> I said, he's not breaking the law. Okay. You know, you know, do I find that flag in poor taste? Yes, I do. Do I want to climb up there and rip it down? Yes, I do. And if you want to come with me after work, if we get up there and we tear it down, that's fine. We're going to jail, but, you know, but, we, but we can do that kind of thing. But the First Amendment of the Constitution covers freedom of expression. Mm -hmm. And he's on his own private property. He can do that. Mm -hmm. And I mean... The guy, the owner of the flag, his eyes got, you know, that big because he couldn't believe what I was saying. I'm like, look, I want to punch that guy in the face, <laughs> you know, but I can't do that. All right? mm -hmm. I'm not here mm -hmm. to enforce my personal beliefs. I'm here to enforce the law. Mm -hmm. And the law says he's covered. You know, so and I had to walk away from him. And she, she didn't take it well, you know, for the longest. But I had to sit there and explain to her how the Constitution works and whatnot. And she was a bright woman. She was just upset. And I get it. But. You know, those are the kind of things that we have to deal with. You know, I'm, I'm not happy to watch people do what they do at protests, but, you know, outside of the standard mayhem and whatnot, they're covered. They can do that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And as you say, it's it's the law versus politics, right? Right. Yeah. 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 So And laws change. You know, things evolve. You know, but, but i got to work with what I have <laughs> the day I walk up. Yeah. You know, I've had plenty of people tell me, I tell them the law, and they say, well, well that's stupid. Well, I didn't say it was smart. I said it was the law, <laughs> and that's all yeah, I can do with that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that means you you need the psychological tools, though, to uh, to differentiate between your emotional response and the law, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And some people, more more of the modern kids, more of the people, the kids I trained are a lot better at it. And I think that comes from the education and the willingness to be empathetic, and some of the barriers that you know I grew up with aren't as prevalent, you know, with these kids and, and that helps. But yeah, it definitely, you definitely got to have, you know, that kind of mindset. You definitely got to have that kind of psychological background to be willing to slow down and look at the bigger picture and then come to a resolution that stays within the law, even if it doesn't necessarily jive with your personal beliefs. Did, did you get better um, at oh, that over the years? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's always something that's going to, uh, that's going to eat at you. You know, because you, I was just as bad, and this is something else people don't understand. Yes, I'm a black man, but I'm a black man who grew up in suburban St. Louis. 
and I came to work in urban St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Those are two different things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. I might look like somebody that lives there, but we have completely different backgrounds. So I had to spend time adjusting, you know, to the surroundings where I was working so I could relate to that person more because he has no real concept of where I grew up mm -hmm. and where I grew up won't play where he lives. <laughs> so you have to, you have to be willing to make those adjustments and yeah, it gets easier. But the first thing you have to do is be willing to make the adjustment. You know, there, there are too many people out there that won't change. This is how I am. This is the way it is. And you can't change my mind. Okay. Well, that's not helpful, <laughs> but you got to be willing to adapt. Can, can you explain the, what the uh, major differences were between the suburban part and the urban part? Suburban in, in America is usually a little more affluent. Uh, it's, it's, let's call it a higher tax bracket per se. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. my, my dad was an insurance agent for 30 plus years. My mom was a teacher. Mm -hmm. We were not wealthy by the stretch of the imagination, but we, we achieved upper middle class you know, at, at some point. So, mm -hmm. you know, if I, if I wanted something and I begged my dad hard enough, ultimately I would probably get it, you know, as opposed to coming from nothing, you know, in, in the harder hit urban areas, there are plenty of good neighborhoods in the urban areas too. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, when you go from where I grew up to essentially the ghetto, you know, where there's a drug dealer, every other corner mm -hmm. where, you know, stolen cars are, go are going back and forth and people are getting robbed and their houses are getting broken into. There's a, there's a disconnect. If you yeah. didn't grow up in that kind of situation and then you come down to a situation where that happens all the time. So you have to be willing to, to make that adjustment, to adapt and to understand. And this goes back to that 90, 10 principle to understand that, that Mrs. Jackson here, she's not a criminal or right? she just lives here. Okay. She, she lived here when the neighborhood was great and it just slowly but surely went downhill and she doesn't have the money to get herself out. But why should we punish her for that? You know, it's, mm -hmm. we owe it to her to protect her the same way that I would be protected, more or less, in the in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, most of the most of the differences are, is economic, uh, which leads to educational. You know, I, my parents were all over me about making sure I stayed in school, and you know, my my dad, I had the kind of dad who dared me to come home without school books. <laughs> you know, you know, I could try the I don't have homework bit. I said, no, son, you're just going to read the next chapter and get ahead of everybody else. But, mm. you know, you, you didn't have that kind of thing as much, you know, in, in the poorer type neighborhoods. In fact, education was almost seen as a detriment, you know, in those neighborhoods. You were disrespected for having an education, which I still don't, under, oh, don't understand. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. that's just kind of where they, where they were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hear you. So, I, I think I think I understand. So the, the neighborhood that you're from was uh, that primarily African-American people? When I was growing up, yeah, actually no, no. In fact, I was I was predominantly white. Mm -hmm. Well, here I'll put it this way: <laughs> the school system I grew up in when I entered that system in 1973, uh, it was three percent African American. By the time I graduated high school in 1985, it was nine percent African American. I went back to the same neighborhood not too long after my father died, uh, almost 12 years ago, and it's now 70 percent. African-American. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so I grew up in in a different type of world, you know, with, with mm -hmm. different accents and different approaches to things and a more conservative uh, point of view. I didn't necessarily have that point of view and my parents didn't have it, but that's, those were the people I was surrounded by. Mm -hmm. you know? so, mm -hmm. so there's definitely, definitely a cultural difference, you know, which is why I had to adapt myself to what I went to work in mm -hmm. because it was just a different, a completely different approach to life. Yeah.
so in a way that means also means you know don't get me wrong but that you had like a wider cultural bracket uh let's say yeah. to, uh, <laughs> than other people let's say right, right. And, and that that and probably the, prepared you for for what your life was going to be right sure sure definitely i mean just i don't know that i would have been encouraged to write you know in a in a tougher neighborhood the way i was in my high school where you know my high school journalism teacher took a shine to me quickly because he saw potential in me you know okay well, and he almost literally pulled me aside mm -hmm. and said you've got something special here we're going to foster that we're going to nurture <laughs> this and you know and, and take it someplace and i just ran with it you know i i, I love to write and it showed you know that's that's something i enjoy very much you know science and math not so much <laughs> you know but but uh <laughs> our our mutual friend uh, uh stefan you know uh amazes me at times when he talks about these principles and he's just going right over my head i'm just like no i i, I can't do that i'm sorry i'm just gonna <laughs> <laughs> just gonna listen to this group and I'll write about it. Let's let's keep it that let's keep it that way. Yeah. So so after high school you went to the army or I uh, spent a couple of years bouncing around a junior college. It wasn't really for me. I wasn't fully focused. And then I wound up going to the military. Yeah. I was I was in the army reserve when I was in high school, my uh junior and senior year of high school. Then I went to active duty in the uh, US Air Force. Because they let me change jobs, they let me go into uh, what we call public affairs. So, what what, what what did you try to do at college? Or what did you try to study? At? <sighs> I thought I was going to be a journalism major, but I think oh, I just okay. majored in, in ADHD. <laughs> 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 you know, no, I, I tell everybody now, you know, but, but for the diagnosis of ADHD in the eighth grade, you're talking to a very talented lawyer, right, right now. <laughs> you know, but I just didn't have the attention span to sit there and stare at a book for an extended period of time and that form of mental health wasn't a thing in mm -hmm. the 80s. You know, mm -hmm. as far as my parents were concerned, well, you're just not applying yourself. You're just not trying hard enough. You're not doing what I can, you know. But, uh, yeah, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do in life at that age. You know, sometimes you need to go away and, and figure stuff out, you know. So that's how I wound up in the Air Force, and that certainly helped, helped pretty much everything. In which year were you born? I was born in 1966. 66, okay. Mm -hmm. Yes, Mm -hmm. Revolver, if I remember correctly. Yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. I put my entire life around records. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I'm, uh, I'm 54, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, a lot of things have changed between then and now. So there's certainly a part of me that wishes I could go back and do things all over again and say, well, wait, this is my problem, and you know, maybe my life goes differently. But you know, hindsight and the way things wound up. It, it hasn't been all that bad. Could have been worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, after college, you said that was the Air Force, right? Did you say yes. that? Yes. And, and you said that you primarily worked as a journalist there. They call it being a public affairs specialist at the time. So I wrote articles for my base newspaper. I interacted with the civilian media. I met Katie Couric. I talked to Dan Rather on the phone. Uh, I've got a good picture buried somewhere of me and Sam Donaldson. You know, who was a prominent uh, journalist at the time. So mm -hmm. we also did uh, press releases for, for them and we gave tours, all that good stuff. I was being, you came to my base and wanted to know what it was all about. You came to see me or you came to my office anyway. Yeah. And, you know, you might get assigned to me and I, well, all right, I'll take you on a, a tour of the base. So I did that for almost five years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, what made you leave that position or do you remember? I was young. <laughs> I was young and I didn't fully understand the uh, 
the politics of the military. Mm-hmm. And I saw the job that my senior advisor, my, my senior uh, NCO was doing, non-commissioned officer was doing. I didn't want to do that job. I didn't, mm-hmm. it didn't appeal to me. So, mm-hmm. you know, my term, my term of service ran out. I extended for six months so I could take a tour in Japan. I was stationed in uh, South Carolina for two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Japan for two years. So I extended to take that tour. But by the time that was over with, I wanted to try something else. And there are days I regret that decision, but most days I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, how was Japan? <laughs> Japan was awesome. <laughs> that, was a, that was a great two years. And, that, and you know, I'm, I'm in my early 20s and I'm fit and I'm single and I have no responsibilities to anybody. You know, and my only bill was my phone bill for the call I made to my parents, you know, once every other week. This before the Internet. This was in 19, 1990 between 1990 and 92, so there was no internet. Mm-hmm. So I would call my parents once every other week, and the rest of the time was for me. So I got to explore Japan, uh, caught a couple of really great gigs over there, tons of different record stores. It was a fantastic experience. I've said I want to go back. I just don't, you know, I got to put the money together, and I'll go back one of these days. But that was a wonderful tour. Yeah. And, uh, like, uh, I imagine, and I, I know, but <laughs> that music has a, was a big part of it, like, life even from childhood right and yes um yes. are you actually a collector of music mm-hmm. we could say that yeah <laughs> 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 i'm gonna call that a yes <laughs> i think the, the four four thousand plus pieces in my in my living room between lps and and cds would go ahead and you know we'll send that towards the affirmative but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't, uh, it just, doesn't count the stuff I, you know, sold off years ago. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just careful with my questions sometimes. So. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely a collector. I, I love it. It's pretty much all I do now. You know, I, I since I moved here um, and I put my house together and I've got everything I need. You know, so it's one of those things where okay, well, if I'm going to splurge on something. I'm going to one of the many record stores in the Chicago area and I'm just you know, adding to my collection. I, I feel really bad for my daughter who's going to have to curate this stuff, you know, once I shuffle off the mortal coil, shall we say, <laughs> to the point where I've already left her instructions. You know, you call these guys and have them come up and take care of it because it's it's a lot. But yeah, yeah it's it's what I love doing. Yeah. And uh, do you remember if you brought any uh, records from Japan home? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. One of one of my favorite finds. In fact, I cover it in my book, which I should be should have shamelessly plugged by now. <laughs> It's uh, a book called "I Can't Be the Only One Hearing This: A Lifetime of Music Through you know, Eclectic Years." Yeah, one of the biggest finds I made over there was a uh, Miles Davis album called "Star People," mm-hmm. which I had been uh, looking for for the better part of five years in America. Uh, for the first first time, I heard a song called "Star on Sicily" in 1985. Yeah, 1985. And I was obsessed with that song, and I found out what album it was on, and it was out of print. Mm-hmm. And I looked high and low. I mean, I looked in St. Louis, I looked in South Carolina, I looked in Georgia, I could not find it, I could not find it. And I tell the story in my book about a record store that was a couple of stops away from the newspaper office where I had to go in Tokyo every Tuesday. A store called Wave. I don't know if you've ever if you've ever been there. I'm trying to remember which district it's in. It's not... Mm-hmm. Not the Rapungi. It might be in the uh, Rapungi district. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's three floors of music. 
And mm-hmm. I absolutely love that place. I mean, jazz had its own floor, mm-hmm. which means I just lost my mind up there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm going through the Miles Davis section one day, and I'm just going through CD after CD after CD. And there, you know, towards the very back is a copy of Star People. And that sound that girls made when the Beatles took the stage in the early 60s, you know, around it, some of it. Yeah, that sound. It's <laughs> almost what came out of my mouth. So, yeah, it's that, and there's several other pieces I have, but that's the one I cherish cherish the most. It still has the uh, the kanji writing on it, the Japanese writing on it and everything. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, there's a couple of things I brought back that you're going to have to wring them from my hands. I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the music has been the constant throughout, you could say, like even Absolutely. after returning returning uh, back to the U.S. And then uh, you applied for the police academy. and Right. And it's not an exaggeration to say that without music, I could have gone mad, you know, just, just from dealing with people's troubles from day to day to day. It's just, it's exhausting. You come home, I come home and I put a record on and, you know, things get better. <laughs> uh was it possible to listen to music in the car when you were working? Uh, I made it possible. <laughs> you betcha. You betcha. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was FM radio for the longest, and that was tolerable. But, you know, given my more eclectic and exotic taste, it could be it could be taxing. I would try to find, like, a college radio station or something or an independent radio station, with which helped. But, yeah, towards the end, we had CD players in the car. And I would I would bring a couple of CDs to work, and as you get more experience, and as I became a senior officer, you know I, I got a lot more I got a lot more leeway from from my from my bosses, especially since I, I was one of their favorite teachers. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it actually got to the point, and I'm not kidding, where we stood in roll call one day, where we all gathered at the beginning of the day to get briefed about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I I got a new uh, I got a new probationary officer, and my sergeant looked at him and said, "What do you know about music?" <laughs> and and the kid said, I don't, I don't know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And he said, well, you're about to learn a whole lot more. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I'm assuming it was okay. But, <laughs> but yeah, I, I had to do that because you just, you go from accident to disturbance to robbery to accident to disturbance. And it's just, you know, to a shooting here or a cutting there or even worse. You know, and you just, you've got to find that place mm-hmm. that, that recenters you, that, that brings you back. From that abyss otherwise you will just truly lose it you know and that that has happened out there and i didn't want that to happen to me so yeah, yeah. music was definitely a factor in the car <laughs> and um so you always had a partner when you were working in the street not always not all we, we don't have we didn't have the manpower to mm-hmm. have two-man cars from a safety aspect yeah every car should have two people in it but from a practical aspect no and to be honest some days i like being by myself You know, mm-hmm. because I don't have to argue about what music I'm playing. I don't have to argue <laughs> about where we're going for lunch or anything like that. I just go out there and, and do me all day, you know, do my job, get my reports written and find that inner peace in the car. Because sometimes you just don't want to interact with anybody. But having a part, having the right partner was the key. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are, I always say there were people you ride with and there are your partners, you know, and I could, I count, I could count my true partners on this hand. Okay. Where... We could anticipate how the call was going to go by looking at one another. Mm-hmm. Nothing had to be said. You know, my one of my best partners, if something was about to go sideways, he just kind of leaned his head just a little bit one way. I'm like, okay, <laughs> here, here, here we go. <laughs> so you, you, shift over, you shift over that way. And it's, 
it really is like a marriage. You know, they, they, there's an old saying, you know, if you marry a cop, you marry his partner. And, and, and that's true because mm-hmm. we talk about everything, you know, and, and you keep it within the confines of the car. But, you know, that's just the way it goes because you see your partner at work more than you see your spouse. Yes, yes. And as we said earlier, it's it really is is about communication, and oh, just yeah. just just the example you just you know with the gest the gesture with the head you know like uh, <laughs> right yes, uh, and like the um, yeah I'm 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 uh, interested like you said like the say uh, uh, it would have been safer to always be with more you know not alone yeah out there yeah, with, yeah. The, for now. Bear in mind that there are assignments that are one-man assignments, like accidents and you know prior mm-hmm. burglaries and whatnot. And there are things that are two-man assignments, like disturbances or robberies or what have you, which means you send two one-man cars as opposed to just having ah, I see. two I people see. in one car. So, yeah. yeah, it's a safety thing. People, especially in America, will get upset when they see two police cars pulling over you know, behind one guy on a traffic stop. Well, a traffic stop is a two-man assignment. So mm-hmm. if I pull somebody over and I'm by myself, I call out my location and the kind of car I'm, I'm looking at, what the driver looks like, and then another car comes to assist me. It's mm-hmm. nothing personal. Mm-hmm. It's, it's nothing. It's, there's no evil component to it. It's just a procedure. You know, mm-hmm. it's not a big deal because you know numbers, numbers, are, numbers are always better. You know, so yeah. But it, it, you don't want to go into certain calls as a one man car call as a one man car by yourself. Okay, mm-hmm. If I get a call for shots fired, you know, that's active, I'm not just going to go charging in there alone. I'm going to get on the radio and I'm going to tell the person who's assisting me or whoever I'm assisting, let's meet at this intersection yeah. and then we'll go in together. Yeah. You know, that, that kind of thing. So, yeah, there's still we're still safe about it, you know, but, you know, the right partner, you don't want to give that up. You know, you don't want to give that up. You like having, you know, uh, you like being in the car together. You like responding to, call, to calls together because, like I said, you can read each other and we can anticipate what's going to go on. And we already have that that level of understanding. You know, it's it's not unlike being in a band where, you mm-hmm. know, if you look over at Tony or you look back at Pat and he kind of does a little thing. He's like, oh, OK, this is where we're going. All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's why, you know, it's, it's very similar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how was how was the the first time after the Academy? How 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 the is that? Time, yeah, the, the first, first time, time, first time, you, first time you, whatever. Like like when you were when you were working and you had your for the first time you were in the in the field. Let's say for okay, real. Like my, my, my first day on the street for real is really is kind of a blur because you're clueless. Mm-hmm. You have absolutely no idea what's going on out there. My my first day is memorable because my training officer upset whoever he was talking to and he spit on us. And, and my training officer <laughs> maced him, you know, with a chemical spray. And I'm like, okay, well, this is this is unusual. But but uh, the first year, you're just trying to hold on. <laughs> you're just trying to, to absorb as much information as you can get from as many people as you can get. What you'll find is that everybody's got a style. And mm-hmm. some people have to be a little more hard-hearted and they want to act like they're in a you know, they're a drill instructor in a movie or something like that. Or some of them want to act like they're on TV. You know, they, they want they want all the glamour and whatnot. You know, other people are, are nurturers, you know, where they get close to people. And, you know, they try to try to kind of nurse them back, nurse them back to the right side of whatever the problem is. And you, your job is to take all of that information, pour it into a funnel. Mm-hmm. And, and whatever comes out of the other end is you, you know, when, when all said, God. So, so, yeah, the first 
first times in the field, everything is fascinating. Everything is new. Everything is exciting. Everything that comes out of the radio is just going to be, oh, my God, this is going to be great. And you get there, and there's not a whole lot to it. You know, it's not like TV at all. I'll put it that way. Um, I've told people if they did a real honest-to-God TV show about the day-to-day life of uniformed officers, nobody would watch because it's boring. <laughs> it's absolutely boring. And what it boils down to is it's an eight-hour shift, which is, you know, three or four hours of boredom, 45 seconds of sheer terror, and the rest of it is paperwork. <laughs> because you've got to go in and write your reports. But yeah, the first year, first two years, is just trying to learn, just trying to see how people think, how people do things, how your office, fellow officers do things, how the people on the street respond to that. You know, what was what was a good thing to say to somebody? What was a bad thing to somebody, say to somebody? And then just learning the procedures and getting the habits down that you need to, to build the foundation for your career. And how long were your shifts when you started out? Uh, eight hours. Eight hours. I, I bounced between, uh, well, wait a minute. When I first came out, I was on what we call an overlay shift that you really don't need to know about. Not that it's a secret or anything, it just doesn't matter. Uh, I worked from 10 p.m., 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. or 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. And we rotated hours every three weeks. And then I went to another platoon where I worked from 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. or 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. And again, with uh, three-week rotations. The night watch, 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., that was a permanent watch. You mm -hmm. uh, had to volunteer for that. You know, you also got an extra 10% in pay for what we call shift differential. But, you know, no, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I hit, I hit the wall at about 3 a.m. and I'm done. <laughs> But uh, yeah, eight-hour yeah. shifts, and if you're not done with what you need to be done with by the end of the shift, you stay and you get paid overtime for it. Yeah, I was was going to ask. So the the reports you were writing them during the eight hours, or after? you did your best to do that. That mm -hmm. that was the goal. Now, mm -hmm. if you're busy, if things are you know going crazy as they tend to. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it's a low priority report, you know, an accident or what have you, you know, get back there, get up, get back there on the street, get back out there and, you know, handle these calls. And if you stack up to three or four reports, that's just the way it goes, you know, and then you can come back in towards the end of the shift and try to write your reports or stay after, you know, and just sit there at your computer and get that stuff done. And mind you, I'm talking about patrol work. You know, mm -hmm. I was a detective, I was a detective for five years as part of my career and your hours just go out the window. Okay. <laughs> you know, the, the schedule says when you're supposed to be there, but it rarely works out that way. So what 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 is a detective in that context? What's the definition? Uh, an investigator. When, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when we talk about the guys in uniforms, we talk about first responders. That's mm -hmm. the people who get called initially. If when your thing happened, when your stuff was stolen, a, a guy with a uniform comes out and talks to you about that. That would be the traditional procedure. It didn't go exactly that way for you because the circumstances were a little different. But yeah. normally... A uniformed officer would come out, take your initial report. He'll write a report that gets passed to the detectives, the investigators. So I'll read that report. I'll call you back, and I'll ask you for another statement, and then I'll start my investigation from there. Okay, well, your gear got stolen. Where is it going to go? Let's start checking the pawn shops, you know, mm -hmm, things like mm -hmm. that. Let's let's talk to people. Let's look at the surveillance video from wherever you may have been, if, there, if any exists. Let's see if we can find any witnesses. That's the stuff you see on TV. That's the guys in the suits and ties Yeah, yeah. that come out and do do that kind of thing. And their hours can be unbelievably long. Yeah, you I can know? imagine. So I, yeah, I can be scheduled from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. and I catch a case at 3.35. Well, I'm just there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's time mm -hmm. to work. And that's that has destroyed more than a couple of marriages, you know, because, you know, they just can't grasp how much time you have to spend at work. And you said you did that for about five years. About five years, yeah. 
And in uh, which part of your career? Was that the early that on? Was or? Between, that was between years 13 and 18, give or take. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so somewhere in that neighborhood. I did uh, assault, robbery, and I wound up doing primarily white collar crime. You know, identity theft and mm-hmm. some cyber crimes and whatnot, uh, embezzlements, that kind of thing. That, that was fun. I, I, I enjoyed that. You know, but uh, it's exhausting. It's it's exhausting. It's it's a lot of work. You got to want to do it. You know, a lot of people think that they'll go to a to a detective unit because they don't want to take radio car calls in the car anymore, mm-hmm. and that's dumb because, because <laughs> you're going to work you're going to work harder yeah. once you put the once you put the suit on. You know, mm-hmm. and when I went back to patrol, and I should I should express that in my department, detective is not a promotion. It's a lateral transfer. Yeah. In a in a larger department like New York, Chicago, LA, you know, it's a promotion. You get moved mm-hmm. up through the detective ranks. It's not the same for us, you know, in, in St. Louis. So, you know, when I went back to patrol, I was stunned by how easy it was. You know, you just show up and you deal with what's in front of you and then you go home and, and you know when relief is called. So <laughs> that's it. I'm not done. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so it's a, it's a different world, but uh, and it's all you know deeply involving. You know you, when you have to deal with the prosecutor's office, and you have to go on court appearances, and you know you're, you're executing search warrants. It's it's trying, and it, it takes a lot of takes a lot out of your day. Yeah, I uh, I think this is this not probably not the best comparison, but I was a, a nurse for a while. Um, oh, I'll give you that. Yeah, and um, and what, what was what was interesting um, was that I think maybe it was six or seven months that it took to kind of like know everything, sort of oh, like in that yeah. in that in that in that field where I was working, right? Absolutely. So so yeah. and and so with the police work, how long did it take for you to see everything? Do you remember? <laughs> Did I see everything? <laughs> we, 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 I don't know. We, uh, That's why I'm asking. I wanted to. No kidding. I wanted to put together put together a game of a uh, police bingo one of these days and just come up <laughs> yeah, with certain situations. Yeah. <laughs> like it's a great that idea. <laughs> <laughs> that one, but no, it really depends on the circumstances. There's always a different nuance to yeah. something. But uh, wow, how long did it take? Certain calls get redundant within a couple of years. Mm-hmm. You know, when you see, you know, when you go on a burglary scene or you go on a car accident or what have you, those go, those can adapt to pretty quickly. Some of the more serious crimes, you know, the child abuses and, you know, some more heinous things like that, they took a little, take a little longer to adjust to. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would probably say it was a decade before I could really settle into that, let me make a bingo board. You know, kind, of, kind, of, kind of thing <laughs> because some of the young kids would come up and say you know you know well this is this thing's going on here like a, yeah i've seen one they would go they'd go racing off to the, to the shooting scene aren't you coming yeah i'm on my way <laughs> so it's like I'm, i've seen one let's go yeah, yeah. I'll, be, I'll be there in a second you know it's, it's not mm-hmm. that i'm lazy it's that i'm experienced and i already know what's going what's going to happen here so yeah, yeah it, it, it takes a little time and, and nursing is a prime example of that you know and the first time somebody goes cold blue in front of you, you know, you, you know, your hair's on fire. You don't know what you're going to do. You don't know how to handle that. But the more of them you do, the more routine it gets. Yes. It's just like, oh, but yeah, yeah, I know what he needs. Hang on. Let me go get this, get this medication <laughs> real quick. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of it. Hang on. Nobody panic. It's, it's going to be fine. So, so 
Yeah, it's just a question of adjusting, and it depends on where you work. You know, I, I came out of the academy and went to the, one of the, the roughest areas in St. Louis. So you learn a lot fast, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because you mm-hmm. see a lot of things fast. Whereas I retired from a district that was a bit more mellow, mm-hmm. you know, so it takes a little longer for people to see those exciting things. And they still get all keyed up when things happen and relax. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll be there in a second. Hang on, you know, let's take in the big picture. And you don't see as many of those incidents. You know, I could tell the training officers I was working with. I could tell they hadn't been on nearly as many scenes, you know, shooting scenes or whatnot as I had, because they were still kind of running around like their skulls were on fire. And I'm just, relax. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be okay. Let's let's put some crime scene tape up over here. Let's put the silhouette down here. You talk to those people over there. I'll talk to these people over here. It's going to be okay. Just, just, you know, because you don't want to show panic. You don't want to show that you don't know what's going on out there. I mean, it's what I told my kids is whatever you do, Look like you know what you're talking about, yep. you know, especially when you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> just, just sound authoritative. Yes, sir. It's right over there. <laughs> you know, it's it's exactly the same in music as a player, right? You want to do exactly yeah. the same, <laughs> especially in, a, in an improvisational format. Yeah. Because you know, yeah. I'm I'm a jazz fan, and I would look at what some of these bands were doing, or you know, like Miles Davis didn't want to hear you solo the same way on consecutive nights. Mm-hmm. You know, you start playing something that was familiar, you just turn around and start looking at you. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've heard that. Let's uh, yeah. <laughs> play something so, else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and I, when, I, when I listen to this Dickman improvs, I'm just kind of like, okay, where are they going? And, you know, how'd they get there? You know, yeah. how, how does that work out? It's just, you're in the moment. You just, you just got to be in the moment for it. Yeah, yeah. So you said that you, uh, like in your whole career, you had less than five, you said, less than five real partners. Yeah, I rode with a lot of people. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. I rode with dozens of people. Yeah. But the people that you had that deep level of communication with, mm-hmm. the people I still talk to even mm-hmm. post-retirement, mm-hmm. you know, the people, when I see something happening in the news, I call them. Hey, you okay? <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's... It's the difference between having an acquaintance and having a friend and having a friend and having a brother, <laughs> you, know, they, you know, that, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's a deep relationship, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not something you can base around one single thing. It's just a, a shared experience, you know, that takes place over an extended period of time. And that, those people, yeah, I've had about five of those, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, and it's not to denigrate the other people I rode with. They were fine, you know, for the most part, mm-hmm. but you just... You know how it is. The older you get, the fewer real friends you feel like you have. You know, mm-hmm. you kind of mm-hmm. you kind of peel away the acquaintances, the people you just kind of know. I mean, I got forty seven hundred friends on Facebook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but I'll probably really communicate with two of them. You know, I'm not just going to tell everybody everything. It doesn't work that way. You know, mm-hmm. you know? but mm-hmm. but when you have that kind of relationship with somebody in your car, you know, it makes uh, it makes things a lot easier. You know, one of my favorite partners and I, we were both uh, King Crimson and, and Frank Zappa fanatics. You know, he was my uh, my best friend in the academy. He has this chapter in my book, you know, and I I went home with a stomachache frequently from laughing so hard. That's <laughs> the thing that we were talking about in the car all day. It was just, that was just great. And we could talk to, we could talk to each other about anything. And we had that little head nod communication thing going. And you just don't find that, you know, around the corner. It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so let just just for me to understand even better. So since 
you said there the manpower wasn't enough to have uh, always two people in a car, right? Right. Um, so with these good partners, let's say, um, so, so how much time did you really spend with them riding? It depend. Yeah, it would depend on the manpower situation that day. Now, when I rode with my best friend, we had quite a few people. This was back in '97. You know, yeah. when we had a lot more people on the job, so it was much easier to get a two-man two-man car assignment. You know, mm -hmm. and, and there's a longer story behind how we got together in the first place, and that we worked on the opposite sides of town. And when his partner left to go to another department, his superiors asked, "Who do you want to ride with? Pick anybody you want in the city." And he picked me. Mm -hmm. So I so I got transferred down to him. Mm -hmm. But uh, for the most part, you know, if you have the manpower, yeah, you can stay together. But there are days, let's just say I'm working a six-day stretch, you know, there may be two days when we don't have the manpower to ride together. So we'll be in separate cars. Yeah, I see. So I don't know that there's a – I can't give you a specific percentage because, like I said, it just depends on how many people we've got that day. Mm -hmm. It was a lot harder towards the end of my career to have a steady partner relationship than it was at the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, one, one of the five was one of my last partners – towards the end of my career, you know, and we, once again, there was the musical vibe. He loves horn. He grew up playing a French horn, mm -hmm. French horn and trombone. So he loved horn sections and music. So I bought a, a Chicago album, Chicago three, I think it was, because it had a couple of killer horn sections. And we just kind of bonded over that, you know, that, that doesn't happen all the time, but there were days when we'd come in and he'd say, and you know, the boss would say, Hey, we're short. We got to split you two up. And mm -hmm. it was a disappointment, you know, but you just, you just kind of got through the day or, you know, you call him and you meet me over here. <laughs> you, know, we, you know, I kind of pass a CD from my car to his car. Just play this while you're out there <laughs> and, and see what's what. But it just depends on where you were, you know, is the bottom line. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting. I, I had no idea that that's uh, the way it, at least it went in your department. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, so... B before I ask more about the, the job... So um, you have a daughter, right? Yes, eighteen-year-old daughter. Eighteen years. Wow, great. <laughs> yeah, let let that sink in, folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't believe it either. I just kind of, I kind of breeze past it. Yeah, it's like like my daughter is sixteen months old now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> enjoy but, enjoy this time. But Marcus. you know, enjoy like what, what people you know, like people say, it goes so fast, and it's absolutely it right. It goes so fast. It, it's, it's so fast. Yes, um, but I I think it goes like there's like two aspects to the fast. So first of all, it goes really fast, right? Right. But right. also, what I didn't expect is that within the time that goes fast, also a lot happens. Yes. So it's, you know, like it's, it goes fast, but it's not as if it's, uh, uh, it's very eventful, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You get to pack a lot of information into a relatively <laughs> short, short period of time, you know, and, and, and as I'm sure you're figuring out, by the time you adapt that one particular bit of information, it's gone. It's obsolete. Yes. You, have yes. to, you have to move on to the next thing. So yeah. I thought, I just knew I understood my daughter and how she interacted with her friends and so on and so on. And nope, as soon as I adapted to that, she was on to the next thing. So you have to just learn how to keep changing. Once again, like jazz, like improv, you just have to keep shifting to whatever the new theme is and mm -hmm. keep going forward from there. And now that she's a teenager, you know, my daughter just 
doesn't need me that much right now. You yeah. know, you reach that you reach that point where you stop being the greatest thing in her life, you know, where she worships the ground you work on, and then you turn into the, the chauffeur and the ATM. That's, that's, that's your job. <laughs> that's it. Dad, I need forty dollars to go to the mall. Oh, wait, can you give me a ride to the mall? <laughs> yeah. Hey, all right. <laughs> that's fine. So you just adapt and keep moving. But yeah, it, it's it's scary because in my head, I can still pick her up and hold her mm-hmm. right here. But you know, now she's got to be ready for college, and you just you can't believe how fast it goes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What what would you say is the biggest? change within you that being a dad uh created you certainly understand your friends when they gripe about their kids more because i started relatively <laughs> late <laughs> you know yeah you know i had my daughter when i was 35 you know and, and most of my friends were doing that when they were 25 you know mm-hmm. or younger so they would gripe about their kids and they would say they don't have time for this and they you know you, you try to talk about something like as simple as movies Have you have you seen this movie? No, I haven't seen that movie. I don't have time to see this kind of movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or, or the, only, the only movies I see are animated. You know, <laughs> you know I mean, I, believe me, I I knew Pixar movies backwards and forwards for a while. <laughs> you know, because I didn't have time to see anything else. But yeah, you learn how to uh, to relate to people who are going through the same situation. Um, as a policeman, it helped me with kids on the street because you started to relate to that age a little bit more. They, they wouldn't be exactly like my child, yeah. but I'd have a frame of reference. You know, mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. You know, how many times have I been able to to deal with a more hostile child by talking about SpongeBob? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, you know, I would see, I'd see a SpongeBob toy in the corner. I'm like, oh, you know, my daughter likes Patrick and whatnot. And, and they would stop, you know, mm-hmm. like, oh, I don't know if I like Patrick. That, but you know, we could talk about that for a while and you're, de-escalating the situation so you learn how to just you know pull things from here and there and you say okay well this this is going to help me right now this is going to this is going to help me so yeah it, it helps in a multitude of ways you become a lot more patient mm-hmm. you know with yeah. people because you know your your kids are doing things and you just want to tear your hair out sometimes like no no let them figure it out it's going to be okay you kind of got to do the same thing with the kids on the street you know or mm. my, my my last partner uh, my last partner's daughter just turned five i want to say and i was over at their house one day for dinner and i was talking to his daughter but i sounded almost i almost sounded like her while we were talking and he kind of looked at me and his wife looked at me and i'm like oh yeah you're a dad you can yeah. you can <laughs> relate to these things like yeah yeah i got it <laughs> it's, it's no problem so yeah you just become i'd say you become a little more adaptable and a little more understanding and a lot more patient yeah so between uh, working many hours every day, Lodge. being a dad, and being a music fan, music fanatic, right? Right. Real, real <laughs> fanatic. Yeah. Um, was there a time in your life where the music was sort of like on the back burner a little bit? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. In fact, that... Baby time, and mind you, during the time when she was a baby, I was also trying to, to be in a band as well. So you can add that to the stack. And that's, <laughs> that was, that's what we call Greek tragedy right there. That did not work out, <laughs> did not work out very well. But, uh, yeah, something's got to give, you know, some, somewhere along the way. So my trick would be to sneak a record on while I was, you know, while I was holding my daughter or feeding her or what have you and walking around and mm-hmm. trying to gradually introduce her to the stuff that I was listening to and, 
you know how well you will know how it is with kids they're gonna they're gonna kick aside what you want right away and kind of come to it on their own you know one of the proudest days of my life was the day my daughter was going through my uh collection and she said oh you have pink floyd and she might have been 12 something something like that i'm like yeah yeah i have pink floyd well i really like that one record up I don't know what it's called, and she does makes a little triangle shape. Yeah. And I was like, "Oh, Dark Side of the Moon." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> so, so you, you try to adapt and try to bring them into your world a little bit, which helps you get what you want while you're doing what you need to do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. You just kind yeah. of push it, push it off to the side. But I still say that one of my proudest days as a dad was when we were driving home from Chicago, as a matter of fact, in uh, in 2017. We were just about home, and Soundgarden's Black Hole Sun came on, mm-hmm. and we both started singing the chorus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah, this this is cool. This, this is a good moment. <laughs> but but you, you don't get a lot of those, so you just uh, embrace them while you can. Mm, wonderful. So you, you retired last year, correct? Yes, yeah. correct. And uh, I stopped working in April. I had a lot of sick time to burn, and... COVID was running around and I was susceptible and mm-hmm. I just finished training my last, uh, my last probationary officer. And I basically went to my boss and asked him, you know, why am I still here when I've got all this sick time to burn? And you know how some bosses would look at you and go, you're here because you're dedicated, blah, blah, blah. Whereas my <laughs> boss looked at me and said, yeah, I was wondering why you were still here too. Burn some sick time or something. So yeah, and I, I did that until July when I came off the payroll and uh, then I moved to Chicago in October. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So here I sit. And, and now it's now it's very cold and windy. It's very cold, very cold and windy. <laughs> <laughs> and thank God my office is 20 feet down the hallway from my living room, so, so I, don't, I don't have to go outside. And I have my groceries delivered, so I know it's really cold out there. But I'm I'm not going out there. <laughs> I, I, you know, I might I might go out tomorrow for like five minutes just to say I felt it and then run back inside. But no, I'm not, <laughs> I got plenty to do in this room. Thank you very much. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you missing the police work? Honestly? Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. Now, now, now I say that in that, you know, I was pretty fried by the time it was all over with and you mm-hmm. just want to, just want to get out there and you just want to get away with it. I miss some of the people I used to work with mm-hmm. and and it was a long time before I could watch one of those cop shows on TV. I just, I couldn't do it. You know, people say, oh, you need to see this. No, I really don't. <laughs> not, not right now, I can't, I can't do it. But uh, I finally started watching one show my sister wanted me to watch, uh, DCI Banks on uh, BBC. And I watched one episode. And I'm like, okay, that's, it's a fine show. The acting is good, blah, blah, blah. But no, I, I don't, I don't need that right now. My world is music now. Mm-hmm. So I'm much happier in that world. When the uh, when the Capitol thing on uh, January 6th kicked off, there was a part of me that wanted to go back because I wanted to to do some investigating and start bringing some people in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, okay, that's not going to fly. Let me uh, let me get back down there and get my commission back for a second and go assist and go assist with the investigation. Of course, that wouldn't happen in a million years. So you just kind of let it go after that. But no, that's. It was it was an important part of my life. It was a quarter of a century of my life, but it's done now, mm-hmm. and I can step away from it, and I can grow a beard, and I can you know twirl up the hair and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> stuff, I, stuff I could not do, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I, 
people were, were saying, wow, I can't believe you grew a beard. And I'd say, well, look, it's the first time since the 70s between my dad, the military, and the police department where nobody can tell me what to do with my face. Mm. <laughs> so I finally, <laughs> there, was, there was a no beard policy. Some departments will let you have one. Mine would, you know, I could have a mustache, but I couldn't have a beard. So it's just, I'm enjoying this life. I'm enjoying this freedom. Mm-hmm. I'm enjoying knowing that I, I don't have to base my life around what time I have to be at roll call. Mm-hmm. Because there was nothing more frustrating to me as I got into music journalism than being in the middle of a good writing frenzy, then looking up at my looking at my watching, like, ah, I gotta stop because I gotta get I gotta go put the body armor on and I gotta mm-hmm. get ready to go to work and I had to shift modes mm-hmm. and thoughts would get lost and ideas would, would get misplaced, that kind of thing. So now I don't have to worry about that as much. Um, this last year has obviously been traumatic for, for everyone with COVID and all. And in addition to COVID and in addition to the retirement that didn't go exactly the way I wanted to, I lost two good friends, mm-hmm. including a mentor uh, who was killed in front of a pawn shop, you know, when the uh, George Floyd's riots broke out. He was trying to defend a pawn shop and he got shot and killed. Mm-hmm. And then a few couple months ago, back in August, one of the kids I trained was shot and killed responding to a call while he was training another officer. Oh. So those things will weigh on you after a while. You know, between that and just, you know, a kid who's at home antsy because she can't go to school and be with her friends and whatnot, all that stuff weighs on you. So the thought of still being out there on the street right now, just no, No, I can't. I can't do it. I mean, I totally get it, uh, obviously. And it just just the amount of uh, dedication and commitment you uh, uh, you gave that part of your life. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's 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 uh it's a it's an immense uh it's I I don't know I couldn't I couldn't imagine doing that I have to say it's it's like, tra- it's traumatic is is the word yeah. I mean you it's just trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma and this is before COVID mm-hmm. <laughs> this is before COVID mm-hmm. <laughs> excuse me my job my job is to respond to bad news mm-hmm. okay that mm-hmm. that's the game. <laughs> not, not one time did anybody come on the radio and say, you know, calling all cars, please respond to the Johnson house. They just had a baby girl and there's cake. That, 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 that call never happened. That call never happens. Okay, You have to go to bad news, whatever it is. And that's just, that's exhausting. It's absolutely yeah. exhausting. Even if that's what you want to do, mm-hmm. you have to get away from it every now and then. And there's far, sadly, there are far too many policemen out there who don't have hobbies, who just live for the job. You know, and then when they can't do the job anymore, they don't know what to do with themselves. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I have tons of things I can do. <laughs> so, so um, again, maybe a stupid question, but are you or were you encouraged um, not to share <coughs> that you were, not to share that you were feeling you know, your emotions, like, were you, were you, do you know what I mean? Like, was it? Yeah. Yeah. There was a, there's a macho component to, uh, to policing. Mm -hmm. And in the early days of my career, yeah. Yeah. We didn't focus that much on mental health, you know, suck it up, suck it up, buttercup, you know, get get, get on back out there and and, and do the job. But as time has gone on, like everything else, you know, we're evolving, you know, so now they, they have a counseling program set up, you know, where if you feel like you're having issues, make a phone call, go talk to these people. You know, and then they'll help you, you know, they'll help you deal with whatever it is you're feeling. I I am completely unashamed to say that I've been in therapy for six years. Mm-hmm. It's the best thing for me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I didn't go to one of their 
therapist, I went and got my own. And yeah. that has helped me cope with a lot of stuff out there. I mean, I'm not going to talk about it here, but uh, if you want to talk about it privately, we can. But one of the, the worst calls I went on, I mean, I would have melted down if not for my therapist. It was horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and this is when I have 23 years on. This is when I've seen everything. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, which, which tells you how bad it was. Yes. <laughs> so, so, yeah, uh, as time has gone on, we're more <clears throat> we're more and more tolerant is the wrong word. We're more and more willing to send you to get the help you need. That's I told the kids I trained the same thing. There's no shame. OK, if you feel like you need to talk to somebody. In fact, I gave a couple of the number of my therapist. I said, here, you know, call her. You should call her and tell her I sent you. And, and, you know, you work through these things because you just, you can't get through the day to days, you know, without good mental health. You know, yeah, yeah. You so, just can't. Yeah. So at some point, you didn't have to pretend anymore that it didn't touch right. you, right? Right. I mean, you yeah. do your job, okay? You, you know, you can feel horrible in the car and you can emote to your partner and tell, you tell them all your troubles and blah, blah, blah. Now, once you get out of the car to handle the call, you're a professional. Let's do the job. Let's get done what needs to get done. You know, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, <clears throat> go do what you need to do. Go talk to who you need to talk to. And, you know, it'll be okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're, we're evolving. You know, we're, we're, we're getting there. But, you know, like <laughs> any other, like, like any other macho institution, it's going to take a second before everybody kind of, kind of catches up, you know, and it's, and it's generational. You know, mm-hmm. I, you know mm-hmm. I'm, I'm older than you <clears throat> and I come from a generation of, you know, men don't show their feelings and what have you and, I had to kind of power my way through that. So, you know, you can show your feelings, but you can only do it for five minutes. Yeah. Now we're out to like, okay, well, I'll give you half an hour to now. Okay. Well, why don't you go seek a little therapy? Go, go talk to somebody that can help you out, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we'll be here for you when, when, when you get back. So it's, uh, yeah, like I said, it's getting better. You know, it, it's not like it was in the old days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You said that music was, was part of the uh, self, uh, you know, the, the, the was some sort of medicine. Yeah. Self-therapy, yeah. like <laughs> yeah. e- even before you saw a therapist, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And, 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 um, would you say that you, um, uh, discovered music like early on when you discovered music, did it already have that aspect to it? Well, I was six when I heard David Bowie sing Space Oddity. Mm-hmm. And a six-year-old obviously has no real sense of context mm-hmm. or, or deep meaning. But when you come from a world where I was listening to Motown records and Stax, you know, and with Jackson 5 and Otis Redding and Aretha Franklin and James Brown and whatnot, and that's still near and dear to my heart. Space Oddity, Space Oddity is one hell of a shift. <laughs> it's, yes. one of those, like, it's like, what's, what's this? <laughs> what's mm-hmm. happening here? And growing up in uh, in suburban neighborhoods where I heard more rock music, where I heard the corporate rock from Journey and REO Speedwagon and Sticks and whatnot, that opens up your avenue, you know, just a little bit more. Certain records, and I just actually posted two pieces on this on my blog, com. thank you, <laughs> um, <laughs> where I called, I, I listed 20 game-changing albums. And mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what you're, what you're driving at, that things that have just mm-hmm. fundamentally kind of shifted the way you look at music, like Bowie's Space Oddity or Wendy Carlos's uh, Switched on Bach, yeah. where she's doing the uh, the Moog synthesizer, you know, classical pieces. That was that was a game changer, you know. Mm-hmm. Genesis mm-hmm. Seconds Out was a game changer because I got 
do you, I started to understand what progressive rock was, you know, mm-hmm. all, all through King Crimson's Discipline and Miles Davis, you know, Kind of Blue, you know, all those kind of records. Yeah, all those kind of recommend, uh, represent a fundamental shift in my mindset. And that opens the door to tons of other things, you know. So I'll say, <clears throat> I would say, excuse me, the college radio, college radio was what I found when I was looking for more 80s King Crimson stuff because I found this radio station that played Bruford and played Alan Holsworth mm-hmm. and things like that. But they also played REM and the B-52s and mm-hmm. 10,000 Maniacs and whatnot. So now another door has been opened. Mm-hmm. It just goes on and on and on. But yeah, there's, I don't know. Like I said, I, I was, what, eight when I heard Switched on Box, something like that. And on, yeah, there's always a little thing here and there where you're like, okay, well, this is, this is different. Let me go down this avenue. And you start seeing the world a little bit differently. When my dad introduced me to uh, Jean-Luc Ponty and Return to Forever mm-hmm. in 1978, 79, that shifts your mind fundamentally because you know how it is with your parents. You don't want to listen to what they're listening to. That's 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 not cool. But mm-hmm. one day I'm walking through the living room while he's playing Jean-Luc Ponty and it just grabbed me because I was into rock and Cosmic Messenger was playing and I couldn't figure out what this sound was mm-hmm. and what is that sound it's like it's an electric violin I'm like mm-hmm. oh and I, next thing i know i've gone from trying to get through the living room as quickly as possible to sitting next to him on the couch you know reading liner notes <laughs> like, oh, this is great <laughs> so yeah there's, there's you, you become aware of these things more i think as you get older i'd say from the time i kind of was about 12 or something i started to understand really understand the fundamental shifting that music could bring to you. Yeah. And uh, would you say that you're still as excited about music as you were when you were a oh, kid? Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. 1,000%. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I live to find new bands now. <laughs> I mean, it's, band, band camp is a godsend. I mean, it's, it's, I have found more stuff that I've become addicted to, you know, via band camp. Mm-hmm. I'm obsessed with it. And I, I plug them all the time. They need to start paying me soon. But uh, I, uh, <laughs> I plug an Australian uh, post-metal band called We Lost the Sea, mm-hmm. and they are amazing. And I was into post-rock already. I was into Tortoise, bands like that, and I just wanted to hear something different. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to stumble over this album called Departure Songs, mm-hmm. and I started playing it, and the opening tune is called A Gallant Gentleman. It's really emotional stuff. I mean, it really tugs at the heartstrings. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this is great, and I let it keep going. The second tune is called Bogateri. It's 11 and a half minutes long, and it starts out with a really clean, repetitive guitar riff, mm-hmm. and it just slowly builds mm-hmm. until you're in full-on metal by the time the, the tune is over with. But it's so powerful. I kid you not, Marcus. I was in tears uh-huh. by the time it was over. I was typing when I started. I stopped typing. Next thing I know, I'm doing the head bob back and forth, and <laughs> somewhere, somewhere along the way, where they end up there in full metal mode, somebody stepped on an envelope filter or a flanger. I'm not sure which it was, and waterworks. I was just done. This is amazing. So, so I yeah, I live for moments like that, and those are those are one in a hundred. You know, you you'll hear you'll hear a lot of good stuff like, oh, that's really cool. That, mm-hmm. that, Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I dig that. I'm going to buy that. But something that hits you on that level, yeah, I I live for that. I'm hoping to stumble over that later this afternoon when the Super Bowl's over. I'll go over. I'll I'll go looking again. Would you Would you say that experience? If you have an experience like that that you just described, mm-hmm. nowadays, does it somehow? Is it 
is does it somehow connect you with something from the past or is it is it something that is more of a thing that goes forward if that makes any sense it does and that's that's a great question uh i i want to say that i'm more in the moment Mm -hmm. than anything else but there's always going to be something that may trigger Mm -hmm. a certain memory uh when I got word that my mom had passed away, I was playing Miles Davis's Nefertiti. Mm-hmm. And I can hear, every time I hear that song, I immediately think of her. And that may get me a, a little bit weepy. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, I'm going to say I'm in the moment. You know, uh, when the first time I heard, uh, first time I really heard God Only Knows from the Beach Boys, mm-hmm. you know, when I was really listening to it, that, that gets me emotional. You know, or Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings that, that does me in. But that's all... I can't connect that to any particular person or event. Yeah, it's just, yeah. you know, it's just one of those things where I was in this moment and I heard it and it was amazing. Uh, XTC's Dear God, I might think of a guy I was in the Air Force with because he's the one that came running down to my dorm room, banging on the door, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and I swing it open and he's holding up the CD. You've got to hear this, <laughs> you, know, you know, that kind of thing. So, but yeah, for the most part, I think I'm, I'm in the moment, you know, that we lost the sea. I was right there. You know, that that's, I will, I that will, moment. I will listen to that album after our conversation. Oh, uh, yeah. I'll send you a link. It's, <laughs> yes. Wow. I mean, and, and they've done another record since then uh, called triumph and disaster, uh-huh. which sounds a little different, but it's, it's also very emotional. Mm-hmm. And uh, without going too far off the rails, I interviewed one of their guitar players by the name of uh, Mark Owen. And that was without question, one of the most open and honest interviews I've done. You know, to the point where I read his answers and I, I emailed him. You sure you want me to print this? <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, it, he was feeling things, you know, as the writer, obviously, and, and as part of the band, the same way I was feeling it as the listener. So, yeah, you're going to have to check that one out. But um, those those are goals. Those are absolute goals. And, yeah. and there were other times, like with Zappa's Roxy Band, where my brain is stimulated in ways that, you know, that people who just can't fathom that kind of music can understand. I mean, the note, the intricate notes, the time signatures, are they like, my God, I, he wrote that? <laughs> you know, who, who, who has the sense to write that kind of thing? <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to declare myself in the moment. Yeah. yeah. Nine times out of yeah. 10 when that, when that kind of thing happens. Yeah. I, I think for, for me, it's like the, the, the great music, say kind of like transcends, the circumstances in which I, yeah, uh, in which I first heard that music, and right, I, and I, I remember that uh, maybe like uh, a David Sylvan album, for example, that I listened to with my first girlfriend, let's say, right, right, and then somehow like like a couple of years later, I like have a new girlfriend, right, and like you listen to the same album. Right and and like right. sometimes it sometimes it feel like feels like maybe you shouldn't because it's sort of like <laughs> you're, you know if you know what I mean yeah you're almost cheating on it yeah yeah exactly exactly but then I realized no 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 this this music is universal and it's here and now and it has nothing to do with uh, whatever right. what, it is attached to in my past past yeah, memories yeah. right what yeah. what you hope is what you hope is that the person you're with now will relate to it on the same level that the yeah. last person did. Now, you and I both know that doesn't always work out, oh. mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, you know, but mm-hmm. if you can get close, you know, I, I was dating someone who just, you know, who really liked God Only Knows, for example, and I was dating somebody else, but, you know, my love for that song is not going to change, 
you know yeah. so i played yeah. the song for her and she caught it on the same level i did because she thought i was a, she thought i was an idiot when i was talking about how i was almost crying mm-hmm. when, I, when i heard this song i said you know what <laughs> we're going to play this song and i said you're not going to do anything else you're going to sit right here and you're going to listen to this song and by the time it was over she was just kind of like grasping her head, like <laughs> oh oh wow <laughs> i'm like yeah that 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 feeling right there so you just hope you can pass that kind of thing along and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't but really music is music is a personal experience yeah. you know even if you're standing in a club with 300 other people crammed together that what what's coming off that stage belongs to you you know in, in your own special way yeah 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 so um i see that that board behind you there with uh... <laughs> <laughs> the big board yeah yeah <laughs> here's the bad news there are two of them <laughs> oh what <laughs> one, one one uh one board contains all the work i'm doing for websites and uh a magazine article i'm writing and some uh, video reviews i'm going to be doing on youtube soon for for make weird music and the other board documents where i'm going in my book on uh bernie Worrell. so mm-hmm. yeah bu- busy wonderful <laughs> very very very, so, very busy let's say a friend of mine made fun of me because he uh he looked at the board and said let me see if i got this straight you're retired so you can work harder <laughs> I said, yeah <laughs> more or less but i love what i'm doing so yes i'll, I'll, I'll work with it yeah yeah it's it's in, it's great that you now have the time to to do what you love uh and you can it live you can live your you can live your passion and uh, right right passion is a word that was thrown at me a lot you know especially yeah. before i retired well now you can pursue your passion well, we know what you're passionate about her <laughs> so, my sergeant caught himself being funny one day it's like why can't you write your police reports the way you write your music articles <laughs> I said, well <laughs> I, said, I said because policing is dumb it's boring <laughs> i'm not interested in it you know so yeah it's it's i am I'm not a religious man, but I have no problem saying that I'm blessed and I'm fortunate to be in this position because I know how rough it is out there. And I know how people are struggling and I don't take that for granted. I try to support small businesses, restaurants and whatnot, wherever I can, you know, donate to this, that, or the other thing. I, I get it, you know, Bandcamp Fridays, I try to get in there and, yeah. you know, find some artist somewhere where I can throw some support. But it's just nice. It is nice to be able to, to roll out of bed and say, okay, well, what am I working on today? Knowing that that doesn't involve a robbery or a homicide or anything like that. It's, it's like, okay, well, I need to get that statement review written. Let me go ahead, and, <laughs> go ahead and get that done. That's, that's a good place to be. You know, it kind of makes me happy and, um, to hear that you, you spent, yeah, uh, a quarter century. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when you put it that way, yeah. Do, doing doing something that you just call dumb, right? <laughs> and you're not and dumb. but but not but you're dumb, but yeah, you know, yeah, I know I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah but but yeah. but you're still you're you're um you're healthy now. You're inspired. You're motivated. You uh, um you love what you're doing right right and, and i think that's like it couldn't couldn't have gone any better if you look at it that way so, oh you know. I, i can't argue with that i can't argue with that at all i mean i'm in i'm in what i call the dream condo in chicago you know even if it is cold outside i'm still i'm so very happy to be here because one of my biggest issues was travel you know i had to move my 
work days around and schedule days off where they didn't exist so I could get up here to see Stephen Wilson or see you know, Jean-Luc Ponty or, or whoever I was coming up here to see. And just the expense of the train rides and the hotels and the meals and the, and the concert tickets. And now I've taken the overwhelming majority of that off the board. So mm-hmm. if there's a gig at Reggie's, I can just hop a couple of buses and yes. go around the corner and I'm there. And that's, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really happy about that. Eventually things are going to open up here and I'll be able to get the four, five, six gigs a week. And I'm really looking forward to that because that's just that much more stuff I can write about. Yes. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. And I, I really hope to get back to Ch- Chicago as well and play Reggie's and meet oh, yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't live far away. You can come to my place and hang out. We'll play some records. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. My friend, it was a wonderful conversation. Um, I hope you felt comfortable talking about the, you know, the side of you oh, that, no, you, no, that no. you've left behind. Oh, no, no trouble. No trouble. We didn't give away any state secrets or anything. We'll, we'll, no. we'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's, no, it, and rare, rare is the day I have trouble talking. So that's, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll be fine. No, this was, this was a great introduction for me. Um, and it's, it's, as you said, it's a very, uh, it's sort of like a very, very deep thing. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. And, and when I, when I write that book, you'll, uh, <laughs> you'll understand a little bit more. Yes, I would. I would really. I would. I would really love to read that. Have do you have? Uh, do you know when? That's a good question. I have a lot on my plate right now, and I'd like to take at least another year to get more object more objective about it. Yeah. Right now, it's still it's still a little emotional. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, the book is called Lifting the Veil. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. You know. I haven't come up with my subtitle officially yet, but it's basically it's not an expose. It's not a gotcha piece. It's just giving people like you a chance to, to look behind the curtain and see how things really work. You know, why do yeah. we go to calls the way we go to calls? How, why are things dispatched this way? Why do we handle things like that? You know, just, I want more people to look at what I'm doing and say, Oh, I, okay. That, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and mistakes will be made you know, in, the, in, the, yeah. in the course of doing these kind of things. And people need to understand, and I'm not going to go off too far on this because obviously we're towards the end, but People need to understand that a trial is a sales job. Okay, it's, it's not necessarily you know a question of race or what have you, or or more importantly, it's not a question of what you believe. Okay, you cannot prosecute a case based on what you believe. Mm-hmm. You got to be able to prosecute prosecute a case based on what you can prove. Yeah. <laughs> and there, it's a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And I explained that to a couple of friends of mine who were upset over the uh, the George Floyd thing because they thought the charge given the policeman wasn't high enough. And I said, no, they're doing it perfectly because they know they've got that in their back pocket. They've read the state law and they know this qualifies, you know, and they can continue their investigation. And if they can upgrade it, they can upgrade it. But if not, they know they have this. So they're not overreaching, you know, which may lead to a uh, to an acquittal as opposed mm-hmm. to I know mm-hmm. he's guilty of this. I got him you know, on, yeah. on this. So, yeah, more people need to understand how that kind of thing works. So it sounds to me as if you already have an idea of what the the table of contents or like the yeah the the, yeah. the structure I, the structure will be right. I, I can see it in my head. I've I've got people I want to interview, mm-hmm. all that other kind of stuff. There, it's all kind of whirling around up there. But I just need a little more time to step away from it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, to, yeah, be, yeah. to be to be a little less emotional about it, and then I can uh, then I can go forward from there. Yeah, wonderful. 
Okay, my friend. So I know we could talk for many more hours, but just leave it. Let's <laughs> let's leave it at that. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. I yes. appreciate you taking the time. <laughs> no, wonderful. And uh, I'm actually it's it's great to hear that you will be uh, uh, doing uh, video reviews, like or no, yeah, music re reviews for oh, like, weird music. Video reviews. I will yeah. be doing sixty second video reviews in addition to the stuff I'm writing. Oh, that's that's fantastic. So we will be seeing more of you. Which oh, is... Sadly, yes, you will be. Sadly, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> uh, how many? How many are you planning on doing per week? Or well, I'm going to be working with a, uh, a website called Make Weird Music. Yeah, Anthony Garone's uh, page, mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to do what we call the Third Act Song 60 Second Review. In a perfect world, I am going to review three records a week. I'm going to record mm -hmm. myself reviewing three records a week. We'll probably post at least two of them. And then maybe like a weekend review type thing. So I have a list, according to this big board over here, I have a list of, of albums I'm, I'm going through. Mm -hmm. And um, sky's the limit. So I don't have a uh, an absolute number. I'm also going to do a, a week or two of DJing on an internet radio station called Planet Radio, mm -hmm. where I'm going to put together some themes and, you know, be a DJ. It's possible Stickman might sneak in there somewhere. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, or definitely your stuff, because I really want to, one of the many categories I want to cover is just just a different kind of progressive instruments like you yeah. know touch guitars, sticks, that kind of thing, you know, and so people can understand what those things are and what they do. So yeah, you know, we'll we'll talk okay, about yes. that more so, down so, the road. So, so you're you're right. You have a lot on your plate. So uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, so do. All, all the best, my friend. I appreciate uh, it. Now. Thank you very and, much. Uh, I'll talk to you uh, on Facebook. Sounds good. Take care. <laughs> Thank you for now. Yeah. Bye, bye now. Yeah. Bye. Bye, Cedric. Bye.